Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. If you like what you hear, share what we're up to with a friend. Thank you so much. Support for E2 is brought to listeners in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Don't forget to use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Today is my conversation with Leslie Stowe, a true Canadian food entrepreneur who's been in the business almost 30 years. Leslie is a Parisian-trained chef and the founder of the infamous artisan crackers, the Rain Coast Crisps, which have been featured on Oprah's list of favorite things. They've been in Martha Stewart Living Magazine. They've been served in the White House. They probably sit in your pantry. They are everywhere. In this half-hour chat, Leslie shares stories about how she funded the venture early, the importance of being in the right environment, in other words, going to where your industry is, and why she sold to Dare Foods, a family-owned private company versus a private equity firm. There's lots of hidden gems in here, so without further ado, here is my chat with Leslie Stowe. Why don't we start with this quote that I came across, which I thought was very cool, where you said, I'm not a risk taker, but I'm very calculated in my decision making. And when it came to the crisps, I decided to focus, focus, focus and do an amazing job at one thing. So talk about that quote and the pivot from where you started in gourmet food shops to a multinational play with just one product. Well, I think the interesting thing about the Raincoast Crisps is that we were in the catering business. So we had hundreds, maybe thousands of different things that we did. And when we came upon this product, the original intent wasn't, oh, wow, we've got something. We're going to just like blow it out there. And often products, historically anyways, were produced that way, whether it's food or something else, that there's a niche in the market, we need to fill the niche, and we're going to like run out there with it. With us, it was a very organic, you know, roots kind of artisan product that came out of many other things that we were doing. And, you know, it was timing and luck and many other things. But after being in the catering business for 20 odd years, my brother likes to say, 20 years of hard work for overnight success Mm. that we saw very quickly how this product, there wasn't anything else out there in the market and that our customers and beyond were loving it. And so we gradually started to focus on that. And then when we got to the point that, wow, we should really maybe do something with this, like take it out, you know, in a, larger scale I after 
you know, the grueling years of catering decided, well, why don't we just focus on this one product and do it really well and blinkers on and keep moving forward. You mentioned your brother was the guy that said 20 years of hard work for overnight success. Is he a partner in the business? No, no, he's not. I mean, I, I always use the word we because I had a great team. It was the proverbial we, a great team that worked with me from day one, building the catering business, the dessert business. And uh, I had my father and my husband were huge influences on sort of, you know, the direction I went. Do you remember how you scaled on the business side? <laughs> I was in charge of marketing and distribution. We did. We actually, within the lower main Vancouver and Lower Mainland, we actually distribute our own product. We never actually partnered with, even to this day, with a distributor on the West Coast. And we slowly, we did, you know, get professional help with the marketing. But again, we didn't have a lot of money, any money that we were, you know, getting from the product we were putting back into like getting more equipment, et cetera. And it was really, you know, on the East Coast, it was one distribution company that we ended up getting connected with that really like made it for us in Eastern Canada. Like as far as the distribution, they were phenomenal and they were in the same mindset as we were. Mm -hmm. On the money side. So a lot of the profits are being reinvested in the business. This is organic growth, so to speak. Were there any particular banking partnerships or investors that were critical to the growth of the company in the early days? We went from 2,000 square feet to 7,000. So that for us was a huge leap. And the space that we moved into was a warehouse. So we had to create a bakery out of that. So I, with our business plan, went, you know, to the, our bank that we've been using and they just said, mm, yeah, I don't think so. You know, in the food business, it's sort of like uh, the restaurant business too. They decided it was too high risk. Although what I was looking for was not that horrendous amount of money. But I then continued along my path and cashed in all of my RSPs and all my savings and said, okay, you know, can you just match this amount? And I'll say that HSBC absolutely like came to the table and wanted to give me more money. All the other banks, it was like if I got my husband or my father to co-sign the loan, they would consider it. But I was not going down that path. I just I was doing it myself. And so interestingly, down the road from there, they had as the success built, then they're all knocking at my door. I'm interested to dive into the thinking process of a non-risk taker like yourself <laughs> who decides that they're going to cash in their entire RSP in order to make this happen. Do you remember what was going through your mind when you made that decision and how uncomfortable was that for you? A lot of sleepless nights and <laughs> stomach ache most of the time. But I, you know, have to qualify that with the fact that I, at the time I was married, my husband had a great job, you know, if it didn't work out, he said, you're going to, you know, forever regret that you didn't go for it and try this out. And which is so true. I could still be in the catering business working like, you know, 24 seven 
as I see many of my peers and in the restaurant business. And along the road, I mean, you know, there were a lot of things that lined up, the right thing, the right time. But I have to say that I think that we really, you know, kept the path and really could have been gone off on a different route many, many times and, and didn't. And so that, again, led to the success, I'd say, of the business and the product. Do you think if HSBC didn't come to the table that this might have not happened? No, I, I would have I would have found the money somewhere else. But I was going to pursue this. If they hadn't come, I, I would have continued to go to, firstly, other financial institutions, but then I would have gone out there looking for outside investors. You mentioned regret. So for listeners who might be interested in pursuing a new venture and feel like, you know, feel this fear of God hanging over their head that if they do this and they leave their full-time job and pursue this new project that they're thinking about, they might just lose everything or it might be a horrible decision or whatever. But they feel like if they don't take this step, they're going to regret it for potentially the rest of their life because they'll always be thinking about the what if. What advice would you give to a person thinking about making that shift? Talk to the people that are in the business already. That's what I my you know big advice would would be. And okay, and do the list of the pros and cons. Okay, if this is like total disaster, where am I going to be personally? So give yourself you know that kind of. If you have to put it off for a bit and save a bit of money so you've got a cushion or you need, you know, some experience in that area, go and learn it on the back of someone else. I want to shift gears into the actual environment. So you're alluding to this in in much of what you're saying. As somebody that trained in Paris and then came back to Vancouver, it feels to me like these are good markets for somebody in artisan food. They're both progressive cities in the world of food. For an aspiring chef or food entrepreneur that might be very passionate but feels like they're stuck in the wrong environment, maybe in a small town or a city that's not quite as forward-thinking as a Paris, what advice would you give to that entrepreneur where the environment isn't ideal but they still want to learn from experts, put themselves around the right people, seek advice, what have you. Whatever it is you're doing, go to where it is that you're going to learn the most. Before you, it's so, you know, lots of people have ideas, but the execution of it, how that's actually done is so important. So to to avoid the pitfalls and to learn, you should put yourself where you're going to learn the most and before you put yourself out, so to speak. Do you think being a very calculated sort of adverse to risk type of decision maker that that helped you in terms of your execution strategy? Absolutely. For sure. That helped me because again, moving from really our storefront where we and catering operation, where we first started making the product to taking the next step 
we didn't take the enormous leap to like a huge facility. We took the next step that we then, you know, bought, for example, the ovens that we first started with were not all brand new, like secondhand. And then we'd like replace them as we went along. And so the adversity to risk definitely helped me in that because I saw, I've seen other startup companies that say, oh, they've got this great idea and then they want all the bells and whistles and the newest and the most space and we're going to do this. And they get ahead of themselves and implode pretty quickly. So in 2012, Oprah Winfrey calls Raincoast crisps one of her favorite things to eat. Yes. <laughs> I imagine things must have exploded in an unexpected way after this happened. Do you remember where you were when you were made aware of all this and what happened following this news? Well, our whole team was pretty excited about it. We had a, quite a good distribution network set up already. It was inter It's interesting with that kind of news because the direction that the actual magazine gave to the product was through, interestingly, through one sort of store kind of network in California. So it wasn't all over the place. And there was definitely a, a spike, but it's, it's different than, for example, her endorsing like a, a book or something that's already on the shelves and then everyone starts buying it. It's also... The, the distribution of a product is 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 the key really to its final success, and so we did definitely see a spike. And it, I'd say, in the long run, the thing that was the biggest boon to us about that is being able to use that to further distribute the product and get it into retailers. So I mentioned Oprah. Also, Martha Stewart Living Magazine happened. The crisps have been served in the White House and beyond. The, the success has spawned a handful of imitators. I know protecting IP is really, really tough with food. You can't really patent recipes, but you can trademark stuff, right? Name, graphics, packaging, etc. What did you guys do to protect yourself? Not enough. <laughs> we did protect our our logo, um, this style of the font attached to the logo the names you know that's exactly right with food you have to list all your ingredients it's not rocket science you can reverse engineer any you know good chef could reverse engineer the product to figure out what is you know how it's made and the, the actual packaging we didn't we should have pursued that, you know, we didn't protect ourselves on the actual packaging. And so there are definitely people that have copycatted the style of the packaging as well. You know, you look at each crisp is slightly different. It's it's not a product that's uniform. It's got like waves to it and feels like each piece is, and it is unique. So we want people to be able to see that. It is, you know, the the thing is you just have to keep staying one step ahead of, you know, the guy that's scrambling up behind you. It it's, surprises me, though, that they want to copy it, but not really. They And I'm the first one to say that, you know, if there's something that's 
better out there, then, you know, great. Like, that's amazing. But I'd say we're the benchmark and nobody is making a product is that's like that, that is as good as ours. They're just trying to make a cheaper product. Yeah. So cheaper. Let's talk about that for a sec. So food companies are under constant pressure to widen margins. They want to cut costs, et cetera. What's the strategy there to keep the quality high and also make the product affordable to consumers at the same time? It's not helpful to anyone if you're not making money. It's not helpful to the people that you're working with or the consumers because you'll be out of business. So because our price point and we knew at the beginning that people were going to go, what, like a cracker that's like six ninety nine a package that, that was like unheard of before. But also there wasn't a product out there like it. So there was at the beginning a little bit of resistance, not from our direct customers, the customer consumer, but some of the bigger retailers, there was pushback a bit. But then, you know, consumers and customers wanted it. So they kind of went, okay, you know, then we'll buy it. And I think it's important to keep your price high if you're offering a premium product like you guys were. It wasn't just to keep it high. It was to keep us in business, you know, in the beginning. And it allowed us, as we, economies of scale, allowed us to buy ingredients at a better price that we could actually then spend money on marketing and and other things. I mean, in the very beginning, this I love this story in that, when we first came out with the product, people would take a box of Rainco's Crisp as a hostess gift going to someone's house for dinner. Mm-hmm. I mean, you actually think about that. Like who takes a box of crackers to someone's house as a hostess gift? Are you kidding me? And people were like oh, thrilled. Like, like, are you kidding? This is like we created unknowingly to a point something that was special, like unique and special. And if you're entertaining, you're serving this product, you know, to your guests and people are like, wow, like, you know, you know what you're doing. You're like serving the Rainco's Crisp and you think I'm special because you're serving it to me. So we created that kind of aura behind the product because, again, it was so unique and it was there was obviously a niche, a need for it in the marketplace. And full disclosure, my wife and I have done this. Asian, <laughs> we brought raincoast crisps and a Saint Andre cheese with it to uh, to a party. So, Perfect. and weren't you well received? A hundred percent. I mean, we we loved the product. I mean, my wife is a big fan. We often have them in the pantry. It's a great store. It's a cool cracker, and they taste amazing. I want to ask you about the gluten free movement for a sec. So in response to consumer requests or on a macro level, the whole wheat-free craze, you've introduced a different product, which is the oat crisps. What was the thinking like behind the release of that product? And was there any concern about cannibalizing the existing product line with this release? Or has this really been a purely incremental bump for the company? We actually resisted for quite a while. I kept saying, you know, "Mm, this whole thing... It's going to be a trend. It's going to like pass. This too will pass. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. really. But we wanted to, yes, capture that market that wasn't buying our product. And we weren't weren't really worried about cannibalizing the 
the original crisps. It was just further extending the market out. Got it. Okay, so I want to ask you about the sale to Dare Foods very briefly, and then I'll wrap up with a couple of last questions. So today you guys have expanded. You've got more than 4,000 stores across North America. It's a big deal, huge success story. And you sold to Dare Foods in 2013, was it? Yes. What was the thinking in terms of the sale and the timing around it? And how did this all come about? We explored all these different kind of possibilities and also looking at the, you know, after a certain period of time, you know, and the success that we had, other companies doing similar, even if they weren't as good, similar type of products. I guess I just came to the point we had employees in the United States and decided that, okay, we could either, and we did go down this path for a bit, you know, sell or partner with a private equity company or privately, which the DARE uh, company is still a family-owned private company, to Again, about distribution, my, my thought process was that I wanted the product to be have a life and growth greater than myself. And so to help the product itself, that I needed to pursue one of these paths. In the end, I decided it was down to two different, you know, paths and different companies and to do the full sellout and, you know, continue to help them myself, as opposed to going the route of the private equity path where their goal is really to build it up and sell it out again. And we had a huge, you know, bit of interest in, and when we actually kind of put it out there, I mean, there were 27 different companies that were interested in, in acquiring us or becoming partners with us. And this, I decide, I really, I believe to today that I took the right path and I continue to consult with the company. You mentioned Dare Foods, a private company. The private equity goal is likely to, to build up the business and then flip it again. 27 parties come to the table. Did you have, was there a human element to this? Like, did you have, were you kind of following your gut as you weeded some of these parties out? to ensure that whoever was going to ultimately buy the company was the not only the right fit from a acquisition price standpoint, but also from a human standpoint. Oh, that was like key for me. Like when I say I had a stomach ache and sleepless nights when I was originally starting the company, this was a like a brutal process for me. And I had many, many, you know, weeks that I said, like, I can't, I'm not doing this. I just, this is too, it's like my baby. I'm letting my baby go, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was absolutely key to me. I mean, I, we didn't need to sell the company because we needed the money, like companies growing, doing very well. We, my whole goal was to push the company forward in a way that I felt personally that I couldn't. So it was key to me that it was going to go in a direction that I felt good about. It still, you know, had my name on and that they would uh, stay true to the integrity of the product. And that was absolutely like number one for me. Interestingly, that Dare had actually, they 
have acquired a few companies, but not that many. They're like 120 year old company and they are a mainstream like cookie cracker company. They had wanted to get into the specialty kind of area. And the only way really for them to do that was to acquire an artisan company that was doing something well and interesting. And we were the benchmark that they had up like all their, you know, before we even were for sale, they were, which they couldn't even believe that this was an opportunity for them because this is what they said. This is what they want. Like a Leslie Stowe, you know, Rainco's crisps. This is the benchmark for them. So early on, I thought that they were probably a pretty good candidate and happy that it went that route. Yeah, it sounds like it's a, ultimately a great relationship. You're still consulting for them. I want to ask you, and we've got a few minutes left, I want to wrap up by asking you about your two cookbooks that you've authored, specifically Desserts from My Kitchen, which is really a return to your first love desserts. Were there any challenges that you didn't expect in terms of putting this this book of 100 plus recipes together? And what does the book mean to you? Many challenges. I actually was involved in every stage of the whole process from like the the photographer to like the type of paper, the the printer, everything. I mean, it was a huge, huge project. It was amazing to go down that path, huge amount of work, but it came at the perfect time because after selling the company, I had sort of started along this path, but didn't really have time to work on the book. And so I threw myself into this which was perfect because it was therapeutic for me to be able to do, you know, a, a big project like this when I'd been, you know, for 25 years, you know, doing it sort of like a job that was 24-7. Where can, in, in the last couple of minutes, I'll give you the last word, Leslie, where can people find the book and where can people find out more about, of course, Raincoast Crisps and all that you're doing in the world of food? Well, the book is available online. It has been out for a few years now in the world of cookbooks. The shelf life in the in stores, the retail stores, is about a year. And so you can find the book online. And also my previous book, Leslie Still Find Foods Cookbook, which is everything from hors d'oeuvres right through to desserts. And the, the Raincoast Crisp, you, you can find them in pretty much most of your local grocery stores, cheese shops, specialty stores and we have I still use the word we have to a whole line of another cracker called the flats which are three different flavor profiles to go in your you know to me it was something that we'd been working on for quite a while before selling the the company and to branch out and complement the bread cracker basket kale, walnut, beet, balsamic, and butternut squash and maple. So they're, again, to go with cheese and pate and soups and salads. And we've just come out with two new flavor profiles of the crisp, which I'm thrilled about because I'd always want to do a cheese crisp. And so there's two new cheese crisps on the market now. Probably great to bring these crackers to any party, as we discussed, with a fine brie. Congratulations, Leslie. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. 
With Owner, you can run a name search, register or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co, that's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Electric Out.